Ryuichi Sakamoto, Coda, a new film about the legendary Oscar-winning composer, social activist, actor, and electro-pop pioneer, is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. IndieWire calls Coda a portrait of an artist that's nearly as powerful and necessary as the artist himself. Tickets on sale now. Welcome to the Film Comet podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comet. Drone photography has become a common feature in documentaries and in fiction features as well. And you often know a drone shot when you see it. It's that God's eye perspective that floats over the landscape with a steady and smooth but vaguely unnatural movement. But does drone photography have a greater potential in movies than it's currently being used for? Or should we beware their whirring blades? For this episode of the Film Comment Podcast, I brought together a cinematographer and a critic and programmer. We talked about the aesthetic, the practical, and the emotional impact of drones in cinema. Here's our conversation. Hello, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and I'm very pleased to be joined by... Eric Hines, uh, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image and a film comment uh, columnist and writer. Ashley Connor, cinematographer. Uh, this year I have The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which is a grand jury prize winner of Sundance, and Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. Great. Very good. Uh, you know, to paraphrase the, the Bazin essay, Our Drone Cinema, I guess we'll, we'll figure that out here once and for all. And... We also have an article that's kind of, you know, the, the, the pretext for this uh, in the upcoming issue, July-August issue, although I guess it will be out by then, by Eric uh, on drone cinema, uh, which has been simmering for, for a while and uh, is is really brilliant, interesting and, and hard-edged. And we're, you know, we're going to kind of grapple with, with some of it and some of drone, the drone phenomenon here. Well, I guess I was curious. I mean, you assigned the piece, and I, I can't recall exactly the conversation that led to it. Do you remember what that conversation? I mean, I know I know where I have been for a couple of years in terms of my opinions about this stuff. But I think, I, well, I mean, I get, what, what I recall is that it's something that I, over the years, writing, seeing lots of movies, and especially seeing and writing about documentaries. It's something that I got more and more grumpy about, and I got really, really grumpy about it because I felt like, though, no matter what film I was seeing, I was seeing the same shot. Um, it was almost as if it was stock footage, even though, you know, there's a thrill to look, here we are, we're up in the air, look at this vent, look at the site that we're seeing, look at the city as, from this view, but the quality of the shot is pretty much identical from film to film, and and I just found it so aggravating. And you know, I think I've mouthed off here and there from the sides of my mouth, but I never really took it on as like, let's get into this. What is this? And I think the conversation that you and I had, it was a while ago now, it was over a year ago, you were, you basically challenged, well, what if it's reported? You know, what if you actually look into it a little bit deeper than that? And it's not just an opinion piece where you say your opinions. And that became kind of uh, its own little journey over the last year where I researched a fair amount. I watched a lot of films that had what were purported to be like really excellent drone footage. Um, and most of all, more than most of all, I just had a lot of conversations with filmmakers and DPs along the way, just to sort of pick their brains and see their what their opinions were. And what what evolved over the course of that is 
well, one thing didn't evolve that much. I'm still pretty grumpy about a lot of the footage, but what, <laughs> what did evolve was, and I say this in the piece is I ask a, 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 a filmmaker or a cinematographer. And again, this is way, this goes beyond documentary as it turns out, but that's where the sort of grumpiness began. But like I had uh, conversations with people and almost to a person, they would say, I hate your own footage. I hate your own footage. It's so not creative. It, it, all these reasons why they all have the same qualities. It's sort of, you know, the, the shot is just sort of gently floating in the air or rising up into the sky and it doesn't really do anything. And people who are proud of shot making and telling stories visually for a living find it kind of upsetting that, that, that so many, like what is this new sort of hot new way of, 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 of capturing the world is a cliche basically. But in the next beat, Somebody says, almost every person I've talked to said, yeah, but you know, there's this one film that does this thing. Or for my next film, I have an idea to do X. And that made me realize that it's actually, though there's plenty to be said that's critical of this moment, that there's not only is there still a possibility, but actually historically, this might be the transition moment of when things, you know, we might be surprised over the next couple of years by by what we see. Anyway, but but in, the, but in the piece, I also go through the the different ways of of to my eyes the different ways of uh, categorizing drone footage and where that where the where the impulses to capture you know footage using drones comes from and and one being the the, the that sense of this is crazy we've never seen anything like this before type of shot or the shot that is trying to um, approximate or replace similar looking shots in the past, whether it's a crane shot or a helicopter shot or a tracking shot and things like that. Um, and so I just got interested in those different impulses. And though it may sound conservative, in some ways I'm more optimistic or interested in the latter than in the former, because I think that that means that there are certain ways that we see that we are, the shots are, are, are acknowledging the ways that we already do see and that maybe there's an elasticity there and that we can see things differently within that language rather than pretending that we're going to create an entirely new language and we're going to see differently than we ever did before, which I'm, I feel kind of skeptical about because of other technological advancements in the past. And uh, just another type of shot, you know, it's almost like it's an inheritor to a steady cam shot, but, but it also can, can float. But so Thank you for that very succinct <laughs> rundown of the article, and that's why we're also very fortunate to have Ashley here to, you know, because you know someone who can actually offer that kind of technical, practical experience uh, of of uh, drones. And uh, so, what do you think? Thumbs up, uh, thumbs down for drones. Um, <laughs> I think well, you've asked a unique uh, person because I don't use drones that much. I mean. For me, similar to Steadicam, they become a narrative crutch in a lot of ways. And I think things that excite me about drones are the democratization of aerial footage. And so it allows lower budget productions to get something that they're looking for, show space in a different way. And I think that that's why documentary filmmakers constantly are using it or narrative to a certain degree. But uh it just allows you to show space in an easy, cheap way. For me, I limit my usage of it because I feel like it is kind of cheap. <laughs> it does, uh, and it just—it's it, not an emotional thing. And I think my work mainly stems from the emotional. That being said, I also feel like people hate drones because they're tied politically to drone bombs and. Um, 
I think that there also is a video game culture to the actual drone operation that is something that I don't necessarily understand. And every single time I've been asked to operate a drone, I can't understand the joystick. <laughs> My thumbs don't function that way. Uh, so it feels a little bit like maybe I am behind the times. Just go back to something what you started with, that there's a feel to it that's not emotional somehow. I mean, could, could, you, could you talk a bit about that? What is it about drones that, that kind of seems to filter out emotion almost? I think it has, I mean, I think what I love about cinematography is the connection to the mechanical, but also a person inserting themselves into the mechanical and something about drones feel like you have less of a hand in it. The wind can throw a drone. I mean, that's what kind of interests me is like the wind can control a drone so easily and you're so limited in your capabilities of operating a drone. And um, yeah, as of now, especially in narrative work, people aren't using drones in any forward moving direction. It seems to be a cheap alternative to helicopter footage. I think I've seen more in terms of uh, like music video work that is used drones in more forward moving directions, more playful. I think for me, I think a, a big tenet of my work is playfulness and ways of using the mechanical to bring in the emotional and get you a sense of you're seeing something that maybe hasn't been seen before, but feels handmade. So I think for me, it's not a tool in my toolbox that feels like I can play with it. I think I would have to go to like drone camp <laughs> and, that sounds and like learn. a terrible place. Yeah, yeah real broy, <laughs> yeah. real broy. But that's and that's also part of the culture is every drone operator. And sorry, I'll probably get like hate mail from a bunch of men. Shows up and is just kind of this one specific type of dude who like <laughs> loves video games, loves drones, loves all their gear and just wants to like talk about their gear constantly. So for me, culturally, I feel like there's a separation. And so more video artists are doing fun things with drones and more handmade things with drones and figuring it out on their own. But uh, in the cinematic universe, it's very specific. Uh, my interactions with them and not one that I'm excited by. I, I got to operate one because I needed to know and I had the exact same response to it where I was like, Oh, this is, this is a video. This is the same interface as a video game. Like this is two finger, two thumbs and two like joysticks going in different directions. And I remember operating, you know, remote control airplanes and when I was a kid and it's the same principle, like it's not a coincidence that it's the same basic in interface because they're assuming that that's what we're used to and I, I barely did anything that is like that as a kid and if you didn't have any interaction or if you don't prefer if you don't like that kind of interface or the games associated with them then it's actually it it, it would seem it's an impediment rather than something that's actually welcoming you in and exactly what you're saying in terms of like that the separation from the physical, so the, me the mechanical that you are not actually personally physically operating and therefore intervening, and that's where the creativity comes in. And it seems it's so disconnected. But whether or not it's the broy thing or 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 not, well, I think this is uh, I, I would tend to agree. It, it that is how is one of the ways it reminds me of Steadicam too. Is that there's something there's like an inherent value that apparently comes from smooth dissociation from the body which i find kind of creepy and disorienting and and not emotional 
And that seems to be what is what people love about it is that it seems impassive and and removed and which is why like the Steadicam uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a steady cam for you, Nick, and like the the steady cam footage that I wound up reviewing, going through all of this amazing steady cam footage. What I actually responded to were the ones that actually emphasized how creepy it is, because it is, you know, like there's nothing natural. I mean, I mean there's something like sort of natural, sort of not natural about it, something mechanical about it. And if you're not going to emphasize that, then you're actually lost me emotionally because I'm not, I don't, I don't move around that way. Um, and the same thing with the drone, like that doesn't seem, especially when it's up in the air, um, and, and moving the way that it's moving, it doesn't look or it doesn't see things or move around anything like I do. And certainly not anything like you do as a cinematographer. And that's the thing. I mean, at least with a steady cam, it is bodied in the sense that, you know, there's some guy lugging this, <laughs> you know, and so you have that at least, even if it does feel disembodied. And yeah, I mean, it's strange, I guess, what they kind of have in common. It also strikes me that both steady cam and drone shots are kind of, you can easily find like top 10 drone shots, like, you, you know, say in the article, you can top 10 steady cam shots are like, you know, these kind of long, long sequences, which often are based on the steady cam. They all seem to be about a kind of mastery, you know, a kind of show offy mastery that also kind of is off putting, you know, and, and drones takes it to some kind of other level of, of mastery to like, I don't know, like just sort of godlike perspective, but without actually ever sp feeling spiritual in any sense whatsoever, you know? Um, and, and that's also off-putting to me. And it's not spiritual, it's not experiential, it's not emotional. It's, yeah, it's something else. And mastery is a good word for what it seems that people are excited about. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about Andre Rublev and kind of the aerial shots with like the balloon going up into the world and like how much, and I haven't seen the movie in like 10 plus years, but how much that stuck with me and how beautiful and like emotional that was. But it's something so specific and different than what a drone does. And so I guess that interests me, the difference emotionally, how you feel about Andre Rublev and right. drone photography. <laughs> um, but there, and I think that that's, you know, the other portion of this is Steadicam versus something like the Movi that's a gimbal system and a cheaper alternative and kind of functions similarly to a drone in terms of how the camera corrects itself um, and ways that you can move. And I feel like, it's something very subtle and something very, I guess, uncanny about it is like, uh, did you see uh, A Wrinkle in Time? I did, yeah, yeah. So A Wrinkle in Time is not done with a Steadicam. Oh. It's done on a movie, oh, but you can tell in the close-ups because the camera just barely is adjusting itself oh, wow. almost imperceptibly, but like it made oh. me so uncomfortable the entire time because <laughs> that's a production that can't afford a steady cam and chose to do movie. Okay. But I think it's like, it's the machine correcting itself mm. that also interests me, that creeps me out, but also it's like, that's the exploitative thing in it yeah. is how the machine tells you that you're wrong and autocorrects. Right, right. I guess. Yeah, it's like it's like any kind of automatic correction that you know, an autofocus or an auto, some like auto 
entering some variables to have the color done a certain way. Like uh, it's, it's, it's also like that. I mean, it, it occurs to me, I, I, you know, if anyone's listening and at this point it's like, well, they're just going to, you know, rag on drones for, for, for an hour. I should say that, I mean, you know, uh, Eric, you do make a point of, of talking about the potential of it too. And that, you know, some of what we said also has potential, um, talks about potential of drones. And I mean, one aspect is taking advantage of that uncanniness that, that you're talking about. I get how in one hand that sort of autocorrect is disorienting and disturbing, but yeah, that seems like something worth exploiting. You know, like it may not be tactile in the way that something that's handheld and of, of the body is, but whatever that tension is, seems like worth taking advantage of. And yeah. And I think the things that I've, the, the, the drone footage that I've been interested in winds up being in some way easily traced back to some, uh, some, uh, imperfection of the of the mechanics and of the process of it or of the person operating it like somehow it's it's clear that somebody's operating it even though it's removed from their body and therefore that's interesting to me like the long day's journey and tonight this film that premiered at Cannes that i wrote about here it's certainly a top 10 worthy feet like it's definitely kind of a check this shit out man we pulled this shot off it's 57 minutes long like that's part of it but there's something about what happens in that shot that is so self-aware of that and kind of cutting against it and one of those things is that though this shot is goes on or at least in, in terms of our perception goes on for that long there's a moment where it just it becomes a drone shot and instead of like whoa i didn't even realize it became a drone shot they kind of talk about the fact that <laughs> something's going to happen and it's probably going to happen on a drone and then it happens on a drone and then it clearly ends because it doesn't quite crash land, but it kind of lands awkwardly and then it, the shot continues, and so, which is all, all pretty amazing that it all happens. But the fact that it's basically saying, let's create a narrative reason why this might happen and then we're going to call attention to the quality of what it is, that it is going to be dreamy, it's going to be floaty and... And I just found that kind of thrilling as a result because it made me think about those qualities rather than having those qualities being passed off as the way we see when it's just, it's just not, you know? Yeah, I think something that I've, I'm committed to, to a certain degree is failure in filmmaking and the idea of like revealing the person behind a little bit and failure is a strength, I guess. And I think that that's what too many people are afraid of with drones is like every time I've used one, it's very much about like the perfection of this takeoff of the glide of the everything and, you know, frequencies getting jumbled and like the drone stopping responding or like going out of touch with uh, the receiver, things like that. And I think... I think that that's what interests me are those failures within the machine, but it's not what most filmmakers who want a drone. And also when you get up to bigger drones, they're very, very, very expensive. Right. Did you see, oh, I'm just remembering this. What's that doodle's name? Uh, <laughs> Casey Neistat. Ooh. Okay. Go Google it. Um, it's like a Samsung commercial where he's snowboarding while being lifted off by a drone. Okay. Like, yeah. and he, they yeah. had to go, you yeah. know, to some Scandinavian country, I think, because obviously like the drone laws in America are like very rigid. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, he's like floating and flying on a drone and it's like a mini helicopter, but it's ridiculous. But that almost, I mean, I think that, you know, that's capitalism peaking and like <laughs> fucking itself into a loop. But, uh, you know, watching it, it is magnificent where you're just like, True. whoa, this dude's like flying attached to a drone. But you also know that, again, it's like a bunch of guys are like. Bet, bet you I could make you fly. Like, <laughs> let's try it. Well, I love that. I remember a couple of years ago, maybe a year or two ago, when a drone went into the Macy's Fourth of July fireworks show. And that was like, I got really excited about that because it's all of a sudden, it's like, what is that thing doing there? Like, it's going to explode. This is dangerous. Like, something about that, I was just on a pure visceral, like, 10 second footage level was kind of cool and exciting but there's nothing there's no there there's no narrative that goes with that but I, I'm just gonna ask you one question which is um you mentioned how you're interested in the imperfections but that's not what filmmakers want when it comes up like what what, what how is it communicated to you like what is the like how is it communicated to you what the function of the shot is what is a good shot because I just I feel like it's so clearly like what is a good drone shot is something that is kind of smooth and elegant like that's I haven't hardly ever seen one that is not those things. And is that actually communicated or is it just how to execute a drone shot? I mean, narratively, when I've been asked to do it, it's mainly to like establish location, like the beginning montage, opening credit, whatever, following a car, seeing a car go down a road. You know, I think people's thought process on drones are quite limited to a certain section of what we think is possible. I think, you know, I wish there were a drone operator here who would be like, I could do this. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure that that would be very interesting to hear, but I think people's perceptions of the capabilities of a drone are quite limited. It's similar to how I feel when I talk to a filmmaker about, um, VR and they're like, so you're going to walk into a room <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a camera but we're following a guy we're walking through but it's gonna get crazy and like all this stuff and I'm like you just really don't play video games <laughs> at all and I don't either but I worked on Grand Theft Auto 5 as a camera operator <laughs> and yeah deep wow. cut that's a, um, that's a separate podcast <laughs> altogether. Uh, deep deep cut but you know it's just a bunch of people who've literally never played video games before and I'm like you're yeah. so limited. There are filmmakers who are making progressive VR stuff. And I'm interested in, you know, the breaking of VR, not VR as just being like, so we're in a room <laughs> and you get to see all of it. It's like, right. just put me in the room. And for me, it negates the cinematographer. And, you know, the strongest thing in a filmmaking is the cut. So I like edits. I like, you know, building connections. So I think we're just, you know, newbies to a certain degree because a lot of people could never afford helicopters. And so now this feels like the new thing. And we're just in the infancy of like the capabilities of drone photography. Yeah. I mean, you, this is, you know, you, you kind of wonder whether drone photography as it's happening now is going to 
feel really dated, like in five to 10 years, you know, uh, you know, like Eric, you mentioned the kind of long zooms that were in the late sixties, like you can immediately know this is probably made, you know, late sixties, early seventies when you're suddenly like zooming in on some guy on the New York street, just walking and you're like, was that really necessary? You know, you can set your watch by it. Um, and maybe drone photography, you know, now might, might feel that, that way. It's, uh, uh, but I, it's really interesting you bring up VR because I feel like a same thing kind of swirls around that which is just a kind of a lot of rhetoric, really, you know, and, and it leaves out, yeah, the cut, it leaves out selection, basically, like intelligent <laughs> selection. Uh, there's, there's just so much of a rhetoric of authenticity that I kind of, I think kind of overlaps with, with drone photography a bit that, you know, there's something, there's something privileged about the drone shot that makes it special and, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a circular reasoning. <laughs> it's like, it's special because it's up there because it's special, you know, it's, but it, there's not actually necessarily artistic use of it. You mentioned in passing, and I only get a chance to mention it in passing. It's such a huge thing to get into. But you said the word privilege, being privileged in the air. There is a militaristic aspect of that. There is a sort of modern warfare aspect of that, and which also, you know, overlaps with video game. The sort of the removal from consequence, removal from the the one to one relations of people that. Um, it's 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 there you know whether or not drone footage is inherently militaristic i don't mean that but i do think that there's a an element there of of privilege and removal from where things are actually happening and it's what i'm kind of get most infuriated regarding documentary so you've put all this work into engaging with people over time and in their in their living spaces or in their working spaces, you're putting that kind of work into intimacy. What the hell are you doing floating above them? Like, what are you doing? And I get, and I get, as you said, like the direction often is it's an establishing shot. You're establishing place, but we've been establishing place in various other ways for the history of cinema. Like the idea that the only way now to establish place or the best way to establish place is to kind of float above everybody's heads. Like what happened to a montage? What about creating shots? of a place and then constructing them in the edit, which is what I would assume you're, you've done plenty of and you're, you would prefer maybe, yeah. Um, actually, this might be a good time to take a break, uh, so we'll be right back after this message. Ryuichi Sakamoto has scored some of the greatest films by directors like Brian De Palma, Bernardo Bertolucci, and Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. The acclaimed new documentary, Ryuichi Sakamoto Coda traces the composer's career and illuminates the creative process behind his latest masterpiece. Presented by Movie, CODA is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, featuring Q&As with Sakamoto after select screenings. Plus, don't miss a one-time-only event with Laurie Anderson in conversation with Sakamoto on Sunday, July 15th. And we are back, just talking about documentary, I mean, it's such a weird other side of the spectrum, drone cinema on one side and then like handheld or like various verite styles, which are constantly communicating to you. And that became a cliche itself, obviously, but constantly communicating to you that you're in the, you know, you're in the mix, you know, um, and drone just, it goes in the other direction. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of strange in that regard. And, and just another kind of just, you know, big, big picture idea is that, Drones are rising up at the same time as CGI has become so much a part of things, which is also interesting to me. And I'm kind of conflicted a bit because, you know, um, 
you know, we have our various problems with drones, but in a way they're also still real. Like maybe there's still, there's like a little toehold of reality compared to taking like the CGI approach where you're just filling things in. But I'm kind of speaking from a bit of ignorance about how shots are actually used, but um, I'm interested in how those two things are coming up side by side. Because CGI is used so much. I mean, you know, when you're shooting stuff, are, are you often aware that it's going to be like a composite image or something? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of post-compositing on most movies I do, but it relates to like a clock. <laughs> a clock's time is off, and so they have to go in and, you know, rotoscope a clock or some shit. But if you do a, an actual like green screen composite, there's a special effects person who is telling you the possibilities. There's, you know, you sh like the show I just shot, you're you're doing drive-bys and shooting it on your iPhone, sending it to the effects house. They're mocking something up. Like it is very specific and you talk about angles and ways of moving and how expensive a shot is, you know, it's an additive process and handheld is kind of a no-no. Um, but so I think my interaction still is like quite limited. I don't think anyone's like, Ooh, VFX movie. Let's like hire her for it. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Um, but yeah, I think that they're just, they're ways of disconnecting and something that Eric said that reminded me is just like, I think what scares us about drones is a lot about what scares us of the future and things like Amazon and delivering packages with a bunch of little drones everywhere and kind of everybody has their own personal drone where you never have to leave your house again because they can just kind of drop you off anything you want. And I think, you know, talking about cinema and cameras, something like Peeping Tom, which kind of was a precursor to like the selfie or people's narcissism and our, the way that like we use our phones and kind of how frightening it is looking back at a film like that now and being like, ah, it was predicted. We're all narcissists. We're crazy. <laughs> um, and I think drones are something in the future that feel even more terrifying because of their ability to remove the human from the situation, whether it be bombs, delivering packages, or getting like a really cool establishing shot. It just, <laughs> it feels like it's, it's pushing us into a direction of less personal and more mechanical. Well, that's when I think that then the only real possibility that beyond it being functional in these limited ways for it to be something that will not be dated 20 years from now is for cinematographers like yourself to kind of own it in some way. It may not be your favorite tool, but to actually make it something that is an expression of you, which makes me curious about how you would do it if you had a chance to do it more. Because I think there's, there's, a, there's a way in which even talking about types of shots, we're not really talking about the meaning of those shots or what's happening inside the shot. There's like the, 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 the type of shot and the effect of it is not the same thing as the meaning that you create out of it. You know, like even saying like, oh, actually it has done a lot of fair amount of handheld. She's going to like, okay, but it's not like handheld is like a way of holding the camera. Then what are you going to do with the camera? What are you articulating with the camera? What are you expressing with it? And I think we're in this moment where drone is still like, you say drone and that's an effect and you want the effect. You're not actually using it to create some other meaning, which is what you would expect from moving pic from, from, from film, from narrative. Yeah. Um, 
this this reminds me of something else that that comes up in the essay. Um, I'm just maybe I mean, maybe one possible direction of of drones. It used a word that I thought was really interesting uh, in the piece: relational. You know that there's a certain there's a certain kind of way of using a, a drone where things become relational, and then it becomes kind of interesting. I wonder if you can kind of expand on that. Well, my guess is a couple different things that I thought of, and I, this is just the beginnings of, of of thoughts about it, really. But I guess the two ways in which I became interested in was if you're going to be above when you point down, there's something about that that is is intimidating, and kind of directly invokes bombing, but then creates a tension that kind of you, you're really confronting the the viewer with with that really sort of artificial perpendicular way and so there's something about that that feels quite relational because though it's intimidating there's a way in which you're saying yep that's the ground i am here they're down there there's there's kind of a one-to-one it's an it's an equal relationship but there is a relationship being communicated with those on the ground or 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 a landscape or whatever that would be i guess the one that I'm, i'm the most intrigued by which I, I have to say, I'm, I'm because a novice who doesn't shoot uh, a camera for a living, operating one, and it was Robert Kolodny, uh, who's a House of Nod uh, camera person, uh, cinematographer, filmmaker, did some work on on Robert Greene's Bisbee 17, and and as working on his own film, he's the one who sort of showed me the camera, and almost immediately, I just had never thought of it, I never experienced it before. Oh right, you can do this close to the ground. You can actually operate this at eye level, and um, whether as I just didn't recognize shots like that that have existed like that, or just hadn't thought of it, that something like in my brain went off like, oh, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in what this could be. Is there a way that this could, um, the way that a Steadicam can be manipulated and played with on these terms? Is there some is there some way of doing the same thing? With a drone, and so I don't know if that if you've had any experience with that, but I'm just intrigued by something that is eye level, something that's actually it, it may be this strange machine that has qualities that are unlike the way that my body moves. But if it's at my eye level, if I can actually relate to it in some way, I'm intrigued by that. I think I've shot a couple times with uh, my friend and collaborator Zia Anger, and she made a music video that I couldn't shoot for um, a woman named Jenny Vall. And she used a lot of drone photography in kind of like fun ways. But the other times that we've collaborated with drone, it's trying to show the mechanism at play. But And when you do it where it's low to the ground, it's kind of terrifying because it's a bunch of quick moving blades that can just like, if somebody fucks up, it's like your eye is gone. So for us, we played with it a little bit. Maybe, maybe I should play more uh, or we should play more, but I think there is a sense of danger when you use it, not as it's intended to be used, which maybe is fun, but in, I wouldn't necessarily put like, an actor whose like face has to be protected all the time <laughs> with like me trying to joystick a drone around their face. But I think that there are more progressive ways. Uh, the only other, the, yeah, the one drone thing that I love was a music video called drone boning. And it was like <laughs> maybe four or five years ago. And I think that's the other thing is like, there's not a lot of humor 
involved with the drone. It seems mm -hmm. like a very serious tool. Okay. And what I loved about this dumb, like, electronic music video is just, like, people having sex, like, from really far away and drones, like, doing this <laughs> dumb drone shots but over these scenes. Uh -huh. um, if you made drone bones, I love it. Uh, <laughs> but... That to me is something that's actually subversive with drone usage, like having a sense of humor about what this tool is used for, like this grand vista right. landscape, I guess. <laughs> right. This magisterial view of just two people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's that's I never really considered the, the other thing that it's like these blades that are, you know, I mean, it, that's, the, I guess you'd call that the phantasm factor, the fact that you have this floating thing um, that, that could do you in uh, if you're not careful. But um, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, I was, I, I was also just thinking about where, you know, when, when else have, have we had this kind of, this kind of privileged um, point of view and what has it meant at different times? You know, like you go back and you think of, you know, like, like where did like, something like Koyaanisqatsi come from, you know, something like that, or the powers of 10 is something you mentioned, um, you know, or, um, or, or like aerial footage or the revelation that all the like, you know, uh, NASA footage has been, you know, that, that always opened things, things up. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I, I remember once I was at this like Bauhaus exhibition and they were saying how much they were influenced by early photography that was just done from really tall radio towers, you know, oh, and, and I, you can always forget, you know, that how much that how simple that effect can be and how visceral in a way, you know, it's almost like a form of like dream flight, you know, that like you might read about in like a Native American legend or something. Cause it, and now it's just kind of cool shots. So I'm kind of trying to wonder how we got from like dream flight to wherever, wherever we are, are now. I, I don't know how long ago it was. I think it was flying to Mexico City and the plane had one of those cameras on top of the plane and so you're like watching the plane land from the plane it's amazing like i love that i mean that's that will never not be the most amazing thing and this is kind of part of it we're floating in the sky it's but how queer how quickly it becomes something that you're tired of looking at and even though that it's, it's amazing that we get to do this okay now what it's it's hard not to get to that next stop like okay now now tell me what to do with that and i mean i, I just want to mention a couple shots that you, you you put in the essay um one of them is like the wolf of wall street yacht shot yeah another shot was the shot in skyfall where it happens uh, the, the shots are motorcycles on rooftops so it's actually not floaty at all which is what intrigued me about it. It doesn't come. It's actually a, a, an imp incredibly impressive drone shot that does not announce itself as droney, and it is um, relational in the sense that it is actually eye level with the motorcycles. They just happen to be on rooftops. So it's basically what it's basically what you would use a tracking mm -hmm. use tracking for, or 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 another vehicle to to ride along, except it would be impossible to do so because you're at a location that you can't get a parallel vantage for. So interesting. Yeah. I have to revisit Skyfall to see the <laughs> shot. <laughs> well, both of those. I forget, I forget the one that's come. Uh, what's not? What's the one that comes after Skyfall? I don't remember. But the both of those have like early shots that use elaborate, um, which is obviously a very common thing in Bond, like elaborate chase sequences in the beginning of the film. But that also has uses some 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 drone in there. Well, I think where you can get more experimental or you can use drones in a different way is when you have the availability of a helicopter. So it's not like Skyfall 
couldn't have done it with the helicopter if they'd wanted to or if like the you know it made sense and so that's I think where you get things that don't draw attention to itself because it's not it's not just the only thing that you can afford it's the tool that makes sense for the shot and I think that that's what gets negated a lot it's like when you're on a low budget and again this is what excites me about drones is that a you know, a kid can go buy one for like 150 bucks and fly it around and zip it around and make something strange. Um, but I think it it's this conversation where people begin to default to it as like the easy out to a harder problem. And that's when things become too homogenous. And it's like every single movie that you're watching has the same exact shot over and over again. It's like the tool is just being used for the most obvious reason. And that's what's boring about it. And yeah, and then as uh, Eric, you were also saying earlier that, you know, that it's a boring, you know, it's a boring reason. And it's also kind of counter counteracting what the movie might otherwise be trying to do. And, you know, a documentary that's using a drone shot to establish things distances you from what, I mean, one thing I got like human flow, the highway way movie, a lot of drone footage. And I just, I mean, maybe that was part of, since he does come from like a kind of artistic uh, gallery space background, part of, I guess maybe he wanted that tension, but at the same time, I, I just, it, it didn't, didn't really, it felt like, definitely privileged, you know, and it was kind of like a travel log of like, you know, global uh, a, a suffering, even though I, I, I have to think he, did, he didn't mean that. Well, I guess I, I was talking about my, my friend and filmmaker, Luke Meyer, um, and he was saying how I brought it up with him and he was like, oh, I love drone footage. I want to I want I want to play with one. I want to do it. And I was like, well, how would you use it in a film? He's like, oh, I wouldn't use it in a film. I just like it, you know, and it reminds me of what you said in terms of having a kid being able to pick it up and play with it and do something. That's amazing. Like, I think that it's sort of impossible to not have some element of excitement around the availability of this thing that can go into the sky, that you can put some something aloft and you can film things with it. That's thrilling. And yes, there are aspects of that that maybe are you know, or our suspect in this moment, this, this sort of spying element that you're saying, this peeping time, Tom thing, the being above it all, like there's something about that, that maybe, and yet still, because we can't fly, there's something about that that's incredibly appealing. But how do you get past that spot to, this is a tool that's going to do something else. I mean, you said, you mentioned how, if you have, that's what I was going to say, if, if you have budget and if you have all kinds of tools available to you then you just choose the right one for the effect or for the scene that you want to and that's why i think it's no mistake that a lot of the bigger budgeted films have some of the more legitimately experimental interesting drone shots because it's not out of necessity that they're doing it they're choosing this tool in this particular way but it made me wonder if when you see can you tell the difference between a drone shot and a helicopter shot as a cinematographer the cheap ones yes definitely and then the more expensive ones i mean the kind of i don't like i think the ones that you need like a license to fly those drones gets a little bit more shaky because who the hell knows <laughs> i i was watching hunt for the wilder people oh, and they yeah. use so much drone oh, yeah. shots of like uh definitely not the actors walking around but like other people just kind of walking through the forest and you know these shots going over and I think it got used too much but I think that there is an idea of showing the landscape that's exciting about drones but then 
becomes only what people see their usage as. I mean, uh, I mean, one for some reason comes to mind the Paul Thomas Anderson documentary, Janoon. Janoon, yeah. I mean, that's one example of where you're kind of seeing the landscape and also seeing it in a rough and ready kind of way uh, that, that that felt just felt really in touch with the, the people on the ground and with the, the music somehow. I, I, don't I wrote about that because I love that footage because it's kind of bad. It's kind of bad footage. And I love that that's part of the film because <laughs> it's because it's it's OK, right. Here's here's where all of this is happening. We're making music. Otherwise, we're inside. We're going to go outside and we're going to take a drone. We actually don't really know how to operate a drone. And so we're going to just sort of take in the landscape that way. And they're going to, it's going to be all these jerky motions. There's even going to be a shot where you see the drone operator in the bottom and he's just kind of like smiling. And I just, it's something about that, that yeah, of course I really, I really love, but it makes me want to ask another question, which is because this is us kind of being more grumpy than not, but talking about possibilities. And one of the one of the things that frustrates me about drone footage is it winds up being terminal, and then it only gets used for functional purposes, and therefore it's really not a storytelling device outside of one that's transitional or functional. Could you for could we even foresee it having a real narrative function in terms of a film being shot largely in drone footage or to a to a large degree? Is that possible? Is that for like would we want that? I don't, I don't know. Like, I it's hard to imagine that back in the. 30 years ago or 40 years ago, I should say, you could have said that entire television shows could be shot with Steadicam, but they are. So is it even yeah. worth asking that whether or not drones could be used more extensively? I mean, I'd love to see like an art film shot entirely where somebody is conscious of the fact that like they're breaking down the function of what a drone is. I think in the narrative world, it would be exhausting. I mean... I tend to fight against like masturbatory filmmaking that just has to deal with like, you know, shit like The Revenant that's just about, right. about uh, like throwing it all down and making you know that like, you know, or Birdman. Yeah, that <laughs> I'm going to get some like hate mail out of this. Um, no, yeah, but kind of like this idea that like, yeah, where it just becomes the story is, you know, not important. It's about what gear you're using and how you're using it. And um, so I don't know. I'm not sure I'd want to see like a narrative. I'm sure that one will happen and it'll be interesting because they did it all on a drone. But it's like doing a one shot movie where there are interesting aspects to it. But the greatest thing, again, for me is like editing. <laughs> and, you know, ways of making connections for people. So the marathon of it all, I guess, would interest, would interest me in a limited capacity. But I just am striving for something more personal than that in my own work. Yeah. I, I mean, speak, I, I mean, one thing I was like ended up just counting because I was like, oh, there's one, there's one. And I mean, at that at, at, at can where... Um, Oh, oh, the Be Gone movie that was there. Yeah, yeah, Long Day's Journey into Night. I was also just noticing each other movies. Like, so auteurs, like the, the can auteurs are aware of it and, and are using it. I mean, the opening film, everybody knows it. Asghar Farhadi, it, it's in his quiver. <laughs> so, and, but I don't know that he uses it in a particularly special way. I also noticed it in uh, Ellis Rohrwacher's Happy as Lazara, which would be like the last place. Because I actually thought that was all... Super 16. Um, so, I mean, unless I imagined it, there was... I mean, it certainly wasn't... 
good question. Maybe it was helicopter. It just did have that kind of overheady kind of thing, you know, yeah. to it. But uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's, I, I, I can't imagine her using a, a drone. <laughs> drone <laughs> but uh, maybe she did. I mean, it was in that. It was. It was also in um, the uh, Nure Bilge Jelan movie. Uh, the wild pear tree. I can totally imagine him using that because also he's a guy who does a lot of compositing and and I mean in some one of his films he even just took a still photo and like animated smoke in a house in it. So he's doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and I don't know. There are definitely others. Uh, so I feel like maybe you know we might be coming into a new era of of drone photography, perhaps. Well, I think it's funny because. I think filmmakers are embracing it a lot because it cuts budget down. And so if, you know, using a helicopter was a signifier to having a large budget, it's no longer, it no longer carries that significance, which I think is cool. And that's, what's great about drones is like, again, knocking down this idea of like us versus them or like what you're capable of. And I think again, to just bring it back, what we fight against or what we have a problem with is when people use it arbitrarily as just mm. an interstitial and yeah. this is what it is. And so I feel like we're processing a lot of different emotional attachments to what the drone functions as, but I think they also are hand in hand or they're synonymous now in my mind. It's like whether or not you're going to do a helicopter shot or a drone shot, unless you're doing something like the Safdie brothers, you know, I think they had really great helicopter footage in good time. And they had did that Jay-Z video that, you know, used a helicopter well, but yeah, I think we're just kind of seeing it. We're in a time period where it like rubs us the wrong way and is an indicator that hasn't lost simulacrum of sorts, I guess. And since you've been working on, on a lot of, you know, independent films, I've it's, it's the fact that certain things are available to you um, that would otherwise be more exp too expensive is obviously an amazing advantage. But isn't there also an element of, say, to be able to use a drone footage instead of a helicopter where all of a sudden, like, what about the helicopter operators or the people who have that skill at, you know, flying helicopters for <laughs> films who all of a sudden aren't needed anymore? Is something lost there in terms of a certain level of skill of people who do you know, as, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, we're not going to, we're really not foreseeing a moment where like help, like drone footage or dominant footage, uh, dominant ways of capturing footage. But like, there are a lot of people who could be involved in capturing, uh, operating a camera and, and, and capturing shots. Drones kind of simplify things where like the person flying the aircraft and the person getting the shot often are the same person. Sometimes they're not, but often they are. Yeah. Is there something lost by having that group of people or is it actually something gained by not having all those people? I don't want to get into a labor I, conversation. No, I mean, oof, the unions will come for me. Um, <laughs> I always think it's democratization of tools for everybody is something that always interests me and like you know, I have a tendency to be a cinematographer who's not always interested in the crane shot. Like it just, it's not in what interests me. So I use it very rarely. And even when I do use it, like uh, the pilot I just shot, we only have one crane shot and it's very limited. And the entire like crew up in Canada was just like, that's it. That's what we did this for. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, I've, I battle against all these things just being like, 
you know, in the TV world, it's very common practice to just be like, and there's movement on when you enter a scene and there's movement when you leave a scene. And, you know, everybody is sort of programmed to treat these things like checking a box instead of asking why. And so I think that that's the most important thing is just to continue asking that question, why you're using this tool, even if you can. It's like, does it really does the, does the story really require this moment to feel this way? And if it doesn't, then why do it? And that goes to Steadicam a lot, where I think people just default to this one thing, especially if you have it rented and you have it built. And this is the thing that like people don't talk about, is just if you have one camera and you book a Steadicam day, the amount of time to like build the Steadicam and then take it off kills a lot of your... Or can it can be a time suck. So then suddenly you're like on the steady cam. You're like, what else can we do? What? <laughs> I guess this scene we can just put on the steady cam. And it's kind of, it's like a time saver a little bit. And similar to like cranes, once you get it on a remote head, you're just like, oh, fuck it. Like, I guess we can just wheel around and <laughs> the little arm can go anywhere. And, uh, but yeah, you stop asking why because production limits you and suddenly it's like, well, we're spending money on this. We may as well get our money's worth. That's fascinating because I would imagine in some ways some nice things come out of that because you're like, oh, well, then let's play with this now that we have it. And you like to play and so some good things come from playing. But it's not the same thing as why we want this tool and what, is it, what are we trying to accomplish with this right now? So yeah, I can see. I feel like why is a good, uh, kind of a good <laughs> conclusion, you know, because it kind of gets us to continue thinking about drones. So I think we'll kind of run to our conclusion here. And what we usually do at the end, uh-oh, uh -oh. <laughs> I hear an uh-oh in the room. Uh, we usually do at the end is we just talk about the last movie we saw in any way you want, just just for fun. Um, I don't know. Okay. Who, who wants to start? So you can hear. It's yeah. not fair. We are doing this interview at Museum of the Moving Image, which is where I work, which is very generous of both of you to come in this location. But this uh, Putin's Russia 21st Century Film Mosaic is what I'm presenting here over five weekends. And I just watched Vitaly Mansky's Pipeline, which is a film that I think is extraordinary work and seen it before but it was great to see it in the big screen and it's just a film that basically uh follows a, a pipeline from far east russia all the way into its sort of resting place in in western europe in germany and the pipeline is just a thread basically to take us to all these towns along the way and we meet the people who are living there and you know we go from you know deep winter uh siberia into kind of bucolic grassy uh, Germany and then and then a city and the implication throughout is that the people further in the east don't aren't benefiting at all from the gas of this pipeline and the delivery point is where the benefits are and that's where the economy is and everybody else is living above a pipeline that they don't benefit from it's extraordinary work because really what it's comprised of are these vignettes of, of people living so I just saw that like 15 minutes before we started. I saw a double feature of Shirkers, Bam, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, one after the other, which Whoa. was intense night to say the least. But um, we all love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But um, Shirkers is a documentary by Sandy Tam, and it came out of Sundance this year, and I didn't see anything there. But... Watching it, it was such a beautiful example of the creative process, and this relates to drones, um, and how we're all operating off fear 
usually now when we make films and it was so beautiful to see a film that originated from like a space where you're just kind of fearless, you know, a bunch of 18 year olds. And like I, with my best friend Zia, we made a film at 22 that no one's ever seen a feature, (laughs) but just so this process of watching the footage that's been gone for so long and like their creative process and just this idea of like, nothing's impossible. Everything is kinetic and you can just make it happen if you want to make it happen and will it to happen. And now we're all kind of crackety old people uh, who (laughs) it's very much related to, you know, payment or, you know, clout, all these kind of social indicators. And so I felt like Shirkers really reinvigorated my creative love for fearlessness. I don't even want to say what I saw because I like that as an ending so much. Um, but I, I, I just I went to a preview screening uh, Tamara Jenkins's Private Life, which I already seen at Sundance, and I'm glad I saw it a second time. I'll just kind of leave it at that because I really would rather end with fearlessness, <laughs> which is a very nice way to end. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.